Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, we've been looking forward to this event for a very long time, and we uh, are obviously uh, big fans of both David and Alistair. Um, I really uh, was looking forward to this event because I've known these two guys for 20 years, over 20 years, just as long as the store has been open. Um, I met Alistair before, we're, before he was a writer um, and we were performance artists. We met him for the very first time doing a broom dance on Venice Beach in 1990-something. 1990-something. Um, and it's thrilling to see him here uh, with his second book. Uh, it's been way too long since his first one. And we're very happy to have him here. We're also happy to have uh, David Francis here. And it wasn't until they got here I realized, oh, the Australian authors are going to be here. So they'll, they'll talk about um, uh, wonderful things, I'm sure. Um, please welcome David and Alistair. Thanks, Noel, and uh, can can everyone hear me? Okay. Thanks, uh, everyone, for coming tonight. It's um, it's really lovely to just see uh, faces I know and faces I don't know. Uh, thanks to Skylight and David, and uh, really lovely to see my uh, students, both uh, current and former, from Antioch University. So uh, I'm going to read a little bit for you from the book to give you a sense of its shape and then we'll, uh, then we'll talk a little bit and I think I'll start right at the beginning. The weight. I know nothing about death, absolutely nothing. Do you want to know something? I'm almost 40 and I don't know anyone who's died. Okay, sure, there was my Annie Joan. She had these soft bones that just kind of crumbled. Then there was this kid, Danny, who went to my school. He dropped out to take up a trade, went up north to be an electrician and got tangled in some live wires. And there are those people I read about in the newspaper whom I almost feel I know, like that boy from UCLA who left his dorm at 3 a.m., the police dog followed the boy's scent to a bus stop where the trail ended and the scent disappeared. They found his skeleton a couple of years later in a basement in Oregon. So I have known or known of some people, but no one really close to me. That's a little weird, right? As a result, I can't help thinking I'm deficient in something. I can't help feeling I lack a certain, I don't know, a certain weight. I think I'm going to take my glasses off. They're too strong. Holy Cross Cemetery. Let's see if I can come to grips with this. When I'm at work, if I'm looking for death, I don't have to look very far. There's a cemetery across the street from the university where I teach. Opened in 1927 by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles, Holy Cross Cemetery covers approximately 300 acres of land in Culver City. There's a photo on the internet of the inaugural ceremony. In the image, which is grainy, a lady wearing a hat with a veil concealing her face is in the process of cutting a black ribbon spanning the entrance gate, declaring the cemetery open for business. The crowd appears to be enjoying themselves. We can assume that many of them are still there. The archdiocese was selling plots dirt cheap. As far as cemeteries go, it's not much to look at. The headstones are all flat in the ground. I'm not sure why. Something to do with space, I suppose, or a symbolic function of which I'm unaware. And the trees are few and far between, so viewed from a distance, or without my glasses, it could almost be a golf course. 
Even the white marble box of the mausoleum on top of the hill could be mistaken for a golf clubhouse designed in the brutalist fashion by some third-rate Le Corbusier. Still, these 300-odd acres of consecrated ground serve as a point of orientation for me and my endeavours and for visitors to the university, which is located in one of five identical glass buildings and can be difficult to find. Just look for the big metal cross on top of the cemetery gates, our receptionist says, in response to the frequent inquiry, where are you, where are we? So... That's the opening of the book, and what proceeds is, uh, I guess there's three different narratives going on. Uh, the narrator, who bears my name, is trying to figure out death. So he goes to Holy Cross Cemetery, across from where he teaches, to see, uh, to see what he can learn there. So partly the book is a guide through... Holy Cross, an investigation, a fictional investigation. It's also a guide through the narrator's brain as he unravels thoughts and ideas and, and anecdotes about death. And then the, uh, the third thread, you know, he states that he doesn't know anything about death, but he's talking to someone that is met in the cemetery. And as he's talking, that sparks memories and he begins to remember people that he knew or who kind of, he, he kind of knew who have died. So the main third part of the narrative are these fictional eulogies. They're stories, they're essays, uh, but they're fictional eulogies. Uh, and that's a really important part of the book for me to uh, never assume that it's non-fiction. So I'm going to read uh, part of one of those fictional eulogies to end my reading. And this is, uh, you know, the epigraph to the, uh, well, not so much the epigraph to the book, but the, uh, the, the dedication is to the dead who are find themselves interred in this book. So each of these eulogies is really for the, the person who it's about. The dancing corpse of Jill Yip. A corpse is a dead body, usually human, though in Middle English it just meant body, human or animal, alive or dead. I've only laid eyes on one corpse, the corpse of Jill Yip. Jill was a dancer. A dancer is someone whose body moves. Jill's body stopped working. She died from an intestinal obstruction. This is when an abnormality blocks the intestines and the digestive system stops functioning and then everything breaks down. You can see x-rays of this condition on the internet. There is a soft and hazy quality to the images. The bones, the dilated loops of bowel, the obstructions in question. From what I heard, Jill had been experiencing pain, cramps, spasms. She thought the pain would pass. She went to the emergency room near her apartment in Alhambra. They didn't x-ray her. They must have been busy that night. They looked her over and gave her some pills and then sent her back home. I imagine Jill tried to get some sleep. The pain woke her up. It will pass, it always does. But this was a new form of pain and she sensed something was wrong as her body went haywire. I believe Jill's roommate was out at the time but was the one who later discovered the corpse. There was some speculation that the harsh discipline of dancing had led to Jill's death. One of the definitions of dance is to bring to a particular state or condition by dancing. Example, she danced herself to exhaustion. Dancing is hard on bodies and on the internal organs. Dance forces the body to do things it isn't necessarily designed to do. I'm increasingly aware that death forces language to do things it was not designed to do. Language breaks down. It experiences cramps, spasms. I saw Jill dance a handful of times. She danced with a company, but once I saw her perform a solo, her only solo. I think it was called pirate dance. It was one of those dances with talking. Jill talked as she, 
Her body moved. She told a story about her past. A story is a series of sentences that move. When Jill was a small girl, her family fled Vietnam on a boat. The journey was long and arduous. Pirates came on board and raped the women and children, threw some men overboard, left them to drown or to be eaten by sharks. Jill had to drink seawater. You could tell she was leaving all sorts of things out. For the performance, Jill wore a pirate's hat made out of newspaper. She wore a black eye patch, a belt around her waist, with a silver plastic pirate's knife and a gold plastic scabbard, a child's Halloween costume. She said the men who came on board wore fake paper hats, like they were pretending to be pirates, but that everything they did was real. Jill and her family survived the journey and reached America. At school, Jill said, wielding her fake knife at members of the audience. When my teacher asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I told her I want to be a pirate. The dance ended with Jill intoning these lines again and again. I want to be a pirate. I want to commit atrocities. I did not succumb to the pirates. I escaped them. I have no memory of the actual dance, the steps, the gestures, and even if I did, I would be unable to explain it to you because it's my belief, a belief that borders on the category of the spiritual, that the body moves outside of language. There was no music, I can say that. Sometimes Jill would stop talking and dance silently with a delicate and controlled violence. She would start to talk about what happened to her on that ship, but her words would sort of drift off and she would replace them with the ragged sound of her breathing and the clumping sound made by her feet. When I learned of Jill's death, Tim told me one of the other dancers in her company had called him. He came into the kitchen to convey the news. It struck me as very unjust. What bothered me was not that Jill was 29, a month or two older than me, not even the hospital's oversight, but the manner of death. Jill had overcome all those dangers as a child, made herself sick from salt water, come all this way only to die like this. Somehow, I thought, staring at our kitchen walls, which were a bright Mexican blue, it would have been better to die at the hands of those pirates. Jill's cool, clipped voice ran through my head. I did not succumb to the pirates. I escaped them. Jill Yip's corpse was situated in a funeral parlor in Alhambra. Tim and I drove out there with our friends Danielle and Trey. Danielle's a redhead. Trey has jet black hair. Though apart from Jill, who cares what any of us look like? We all dressed in dark colors. The car was cramped and the day was warm and dusty. The funeral parlor was on a street lined with factories, bed manufacturers primarily, and other funeral parlors. A funeral parlor is a kind of factory. It makes death on a mass scale through a process of maintaining. A parlor with a crematorium is also a factory, one that doesn't produce anything but destroys things. Yet reducing a body down to an urn full of ash, you're still making something. When we arrived at the parlor, the foyer was filled with people, mostly Jill's young dancer friends, who were also dressed in dark colors. There were all these photos of Jill, prints of various sizes pinned to the walls. Like death or dancing, beauty cannot be described, but the photos provided evidence that Jill was small and pale, with dark hair and eyes so dark I would call them black. She was fine-boned, she had amazing cheekbones, like God had stuck those compasses that are used to draw circles and arcs and geometry beneath her skin. Hers was an exquisite, severe form of beauty. I was about to say the event in Alhambra was a funeral, but it wasn't. This was a viewing. I've never been to a funeral, but as I understand it, that event is a formal affair. There are eulogies and choreographed actions, and the body is positioned in its final resting place. A viewing is an informal affair. Its main purpose is to perceive the body. There are no eulogies, which in my opinion is preferable. Language only obstructs our ability to see death. 
Without words, it gives us a chance to have a more immediate relationship to the corpse. We sat down for a while in the chapel on hard wooden pews and then Tim got up to view the body. As he walked down the aisle toward Jill, her corpse, he made a distressing sound. He began wailing at the sight of his student. Tim rarely shows his emotions, but when he does, they spill out violently. It's as if he becomes someone else. I'm the same. That could be why we get on. I didn't know what to do, so I sat there as Danielle went up to comfort him. He wept into her red hair. His grief, or its demonstration, was so extreme, localised in his body yet immense, it was like watching a twister from a distance I had wrongly assumed was safe. I thought this grief might destroy him and Danielle and me. It might flatten everyone in its wake. His emotions appeared suddenly, as if out of nowhere, then disappeared just as quickly. When it was my turn, I went up and got as close as I could to Jill, her corpse, without touching her. She wasn't in an open casket. Her body was wrapped in a rumpled grey cloth. There were oranges placed around her, flowers, burning incense. I looked at the corpse of Jill Yip. I gazed upon her. In Christian settings, it is strongly recommended that the body on view be embalmed and that the cosmetic services of a mortician are used. The goal is to create a lifelike representation of the dead by draining the corpse of its blood and injecting the veins with chemicals as well as erasing any sign of sickness or violence in an attempt to make the deceased look healthier and more presentable than when they were alive. Jill's family is Buddhist and did not observe these recommendations. Her skin was paler than usual and slightly blue-grey. I knew there were parts of her body beneath the grey cloth that would be more purply and red, thanks to liver mortis, the fourth stage of death, when the destruction of blood cells creates discoloration in lower or dependent body areas, a stage she would have already gone through. There was no odour. Perhaps it was masked by the sweet scent of the oranges, incense and flowers. She still resembled herself, though unpainted, unadorned, she reminded me, paradoxically, of a high school kid who was the role of an old person in a play, that stage makeup they wear that looks so tacky. There was something unconvincing about Jill's corpse. She... It seemed fake. I didn't quite believe her in the role she was playing. She seemed to have been drained of an element more essential than blood, that immaterial component we call the soul. However, there was a trace of life. I felt like I was staring into the mouth of a volcano that wasn't extinct, merely dormant. I would not have been shocked if Jill sat up and stood up and danced. What's interesting is that we're meant to be terrified of the very idea of a reanimated corpse and by the many varieties of the undead, beings who, although deceased, thanks to supernatural or demonic forces, are capable of movement and in some instances of speech. At the very least, they can moan. But I'm confident I would have not been the only one happy to see Jill rise up and dance even if we were alarmed by the sight of someone we thought was dead behaving as if she were alive. I guess what I'm trying to say is we long for what would also horrify us. Thank you. Thanks, Alistair. That was, that was lovely. Um, and thank you again for everyone who has come out this afternoon. It's great to see such a terrific crowd in support of, of Alistair and his new work. Uh, Alistair has recently become an American citizen. He's an immigrant, as, as am I. He's also uh, married a man, um, as, I, as I have not. <laughs> Um, and so it's great to um, be here as an Australian um, with you, Alistair. And I was thinking while you were reading, 
uh, how lucky we are to be in this city as sort of refugees uh, of a sort. And I never wrote until I came here. Can you talk about how you came to start writing? And is it something that you always imagined doing? Or is it something that emerged uh, as you washed up here in the States? <laughs> um, let me think. I mean, I think I was always writing, you know, for a long time, like most writers, you know, you begin writing when you're a kid and it's something that kind of urge to inscription is just something that follows you around. But I, you know, I left Perth in 1994. I'm from Perth in Western Australia and then I moved to London and, and then I moved here. And I kind of spent a few years sort of trying to avoid being a writer like quite, and particularly when I got to LA, I mean, part of it might have been, you know, in London I met uh, my husband Tim, Tim Miller, a performance artist. But when I got to LA, I, I was really, you know, uh, I think Noel uh, mentioned I was kind of dabbling in performance for a while, and uh, a bunch of the work um, was, there was no text, it was really kind of body based, and I was sort of trying to. I was sort of trying to do everything I could to avoid having to to write. Like I knew, I think I knew writing was my thing, but I was just sort of experimenting with performance and with the body. And I don't know why I was trying to avoid it. I think it's just because writing is such a perverse uh, activity <laughs> that, that just you know requires so much time and labour, mm -hmm. and at times yields little results. Mm -hmm. So I was just experimenting. So I think, but I think I eventually. Uh, and I'm so glad I was performing pretty much prior to the internet, so that there's no documentation of all that, because <laughs> I would be really horrified if it ever re-emerged. But I think, I guess in, like 20 years ago, in 97, when um, Antioch University, when Eloise Klein-Healy started the MFA, I you know, began um, that program and I guess and then I was like, okay, I guess I, I have to focus on writing now because mm -hmm. I realised I'm not actually really, I mean, I'm sort of in my body but I'm also, you know, before I had to say goodbye, I also don't really like being out in public very mm -hmm. much so it was sort of like performance had to say goodbye to it. So this is a dream come true. <laughs> um, in its way. Um, it's funny to me that through performance and movement you perhaps came to write, um, but your obsession it seems is about an absence of movement in the, in the state of death. Um, was that something you were always obsessed with um, and how, how did that come about, did this, this writing about death in this unusual way? I mean the book is an interesting melange of fiction and essay and reportage and sort of prosy poetry. It's not an orthodox book in any way and it's unusual and quirky and wonderful like like you really. And, um, and so can we talk a little bit about that obsession and how it came to emerge in this particular form? Yeah, it's, I mean, just throw and watch. It's funny that you say the book's unorthodox because in my head, this is a really orthodox book. Like, <laughs> like there was sort of a review where it said, oh, you know, the book basically ignores every convention of fiction. And I was like, I thought this was, I, and seriously, I thought it was really traditional. So it's kind of, in my head, it's mega traditional. Well, your not, first novel was even less yeah, orthodox, right. I, yeah. I suppose. Um, as for death, well, I guess, I mean, my first book, The End of the World book, was an encyclopedia, and it was an encyclopedia of obsessions, and it was structured A to Z, and it basically allowed that form allowed me to take in all my obsessions. And then with the second book, I felt like, you know, I'm sort of working on this cycle, and this is the second book in the cycle, but with this book I wanted to hone in on one obsession. Okay, I thought, okay, the first book's the book of everything. It's this, this encyclopedia of obsessions. But now this book, I'm going to hone in on one thing, which it's not like I chose it, you know, to write about death. Like, this is definitely not a book I would have chosen to write. It was really hard to write. It took a long time. But I, it was something that, you know, I began writing it around when... 
I mean, I began writing a really early version of it when, probably back in 08, when my first book came out. And it was just this fixation I had that I sort of honed in on and I had to just write my way out of it and spend eight or nine years writing my way out of it. And um, you had a lot of pages at some stage that uh, were reduced somewhat. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the initial... Even, I mean, I'm sure the initial version was my early drafts I always write, you know. I'm, it's kind of just like manic. But even then, the previous version of this was about 600 pages mm -hmm. and I cut it by two-thirds and I, I have to say you know I, I'm not sure if I ever really learn anything from writing a book but I felt like I said to myself when I finished this book I was like you know I learned how to compress with this book I learned how to uh, be really ruthless and I learned how I learned the art of compression and that for me was something I was actually really happy mm -hmm. about but I guess you know death was just something that I, I, I guess I was just fixated on it even thought, as a kid uh, I mean, were you a goth teenager? You know, I was You looked like you might have I been. wasn't a straight-up... <laughs> I wore... You know, I was... I wasn't a straight-up goth. Like, I didn't wear... You know, I wasn't pure goth. You were gay, a gay-up goth? No, I was sort of goth-adjacent. You know, uh -huh. it's like you, hang, you, you wear black, you hang out with goths. Uh -huh. You're a little sceptical of, like, straight-up goth. Mm -hmm. But then still you like a lot of goth music and... Paraphernalia. Um, but I guess as a kid, you know, there's, like... Like, early parts of the book, like, there's a section called The Dead Man's Things, mm -hmm. um, which is about me and my dad. And uh, as a kid, uh, when he brought home all these... Um, he, my dad was used to garden to make some extra money, and he one day he brought home all these, uh, these um, belongings from the deceased husband of one of his clients, and he kind of gardened for all these wealthy women. And so her, the client's husband had died, and he brought home all the um, old man's clothing. And I felt like... So I write, you know... So that mm -hmm. was something I really felt like was this magical experience. Mm -hmm. It was like mm -hmm. my first encounter mm -hmm. with what death mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, th I actually think in some ways it was more... It came up more in the last mm -hmm. 10 years mm -hmm. or so, actually... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. When, when you became kind of besotted with these stories of people who you knew or read about who had died. I mean, people say that they write to find out what they think about things, which is kind of what you've done, it seems to me, but it's also, you've written this, I mean, this is totally me projecting, to find out how you, fee how you feel about this very specific thing that we in the West avoid because culturally we seem to not really embrace it and we avoid it until it happens and then we're surprised, you know? I mean, there are people dying every second of the day who are in exactly our health as we sit here all over the world and yet we're surprised that it's not us today and yet it could be you know any one of us here could die and we don't think about that in other traditions they do mm -hmm. and for you it's really interesting to read someone's exploration of that in a non-scientific but sort of emotional and um, what kind of way talk about that you want a question? You want to like question mark? Yes, okay. please. <laughs> I'm quite a literal person. Um, I'm wondering. I'm wondering how how you got to write this book um, without. I mean, there's a lot of research you've done, which is interesting, and and you can talk about that if you'd like. But also the fact that you're doing it from an emotional, mm. kind of intellectual, but an an exploration from your own very heartfelt experience. Yeah, that's that is interesting because what you say about feeling because the narrator is he's quite detached from his emotions uh, and from his feeling states. But he has a yearning. Yeah, and I think his his kind of quest. He thinks that maybe through investigating death, it might allow him to feel something. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that ends up being the case or not. But but also even just in terms of writing the book, I remember I was very, like an early, you know you were talking about the earlier draft. Like I guess back in when was it? What two thousand? Was it last year? I guess even last. I think it was last year. Last year I'd basically written a draft and I thought, okay, this is it. I finished the book. It was about. It wasn't. You know, it was probably about maybe about a third longer than this book, but it was actually a little more conventional. But the tone and the voice were uh, were kind of a lot more... 
I guess the tone and the voice were a little friendlier because mm-hmm. I think I was a little scared of really, uh, you know, I was sort of scared of the subject material. And at a certain point, I realized that that voice and tone, it was a little friendlier, a little more, not quite emotional, but I think it was trying to be a little more audience-friendly or a little more palatable. But at a certain point, I realized both the voice and the tone and also the structure, I tried to do a more conventional sort of structure so it was taking place over one day in a cemetery, and it just that's not the kind of writer I am. But at a certain point, one thing I also really learned was I thought, oh, you know, I just don't have to... I, I, I actually then tried to drain as much feeling from the book as I could. Mm-hmm. And even though I actually end up thinking it's still there because the voice is pretty conversational at but then it veers into kind of a more objective voice. It veers back and forth. I really wanted to get rid of of feeling and see if through that feeling could arise on mm-hmm. its own. Mm-hmm. And there, I mean, there's no sense of sentimentality at all, obviously. Um, but there, I think that feeling does sort of bubble up between the lines and the language. And I love how the the novel um, invites us as, as readers to really tackle what we think about death and what, what our experience has been. And uh, there is a, a familiarity with the audience that you touched on. And in fact, you change often from the... Uh, the first person to the to the second person, and you kind of break that in theatre. I guess it's the fourth wall. You break that wall and, and start talking about you. You know, we, I would like, I would invite you to to partake in this. In, and how conscious was that, or did that just emerge? And can you talk a little bit about that sure. that second person yeah. adventure? Well, in that version I was referring to mm-hmm. earlier, initially. The cemetery sections took place and it was clear he was directly addressing someone he was with in the cemetery. And there was this feeling of like, okay, who is this individual he's talking to? And that's still there in the book. And that for me is part of the one of the buried things in this but book. But it feels like the audience to me. It feels like the reader to me. Yeah, sometimes. But then I think if you start to look, mm-hmm. sometimes this you, mm-hmm. it's a sort of a slips. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the you refers to more than one person uh-huh. simultaneously. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't want to give, like, explain the, that too much, but... I would say that, at least in my head, there's at least three... There's definitely two U's, but there's, I think, at times even three U's Mm -hmm. that the author's addressing, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes or simultaneously, and then Mm -hmm. sometimes one U will refer Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. one of those three U's. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how we, as the reader, may sense one or two of those U's, or maybe not, but it's our our own experience. Right, and and it's sort of where, you know, I also... I mean, I love direct address, and it's where, in some ways, I think the book is actually really kind of old-fashioned, because, like, you know, I love that form of of direct address, you know, like in the Victorian novel and in the 19th century novel, where, you know, the dear reader, that I've always loved that. So where, for me, it's where I feel this book in some ways is actually really... Like, like probably too old fashioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, at least again in my it's head. It's so traditional. I know. <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, and I, well, for me, I think that second person you thing um, is is kind of brave because it does it. It's it's hard to make that work for long. I mean, if you really go for it, and I, um, and you don't, you it's it's beautifully placed. But let's not get bogged down in that. Um, uh, Krista Solkis, who's a wonderful Australian author, um, says uh, the disintegrations takes possession of you right from the opening and will not let you go. Challenging and gripping, a rumination on death and memory that speaks eloquently to our sense of loss, both personal and communal. The writing is exquisite. In the best possible sense, I know this book will haunt me for the longest time. And it, And because of the subject matter and the way it's presented, it it really is evocative in, in great ways and is something that um, sits with you. Um, can you talk about some of the the stories that you relay in the book from... I mean, I love how the, the narrator's name is, is has your name and that everyone has their own names in the book, whether, but, and yet it's still fictional, which is very interesting. But how... Um, how the the what was my question? <laughs> Is it something to do with like 
why I'm using all real names. But no, no, no. I, before that, there was a, there was another question in there that totally escapes me now. Is he haunted? Is he? Is he? Well, there is a lot of talk about haunting. In fact, you were um, saying something. Can you talk about the real the, the real stories? Oh, the stories. Thank you. Is, is no one listening? <laughs> God's sake. Um, so yes, some of the real some of the real stories that um that were evoked and that you shared with us, and some of those stories that you became obsessed with, you as Alistair or Alistair. Um, or the narrator. Hmm. <laughs> no, I don't know if I can actually. Beth, Beth, what was her name? Oh, that's my mother. Oh, that's your mother. Yeah, I mean, okay, I I'm guess what I, what I can talk about... Okay, what about Cooper's story? Is that based on something real? Yeah, I mean, I guess for me that's a chance to talk about... Because a, a lot of people say to me, like, um, oh... This isn't this isn't a novel, meaning that this isn't fiction. Because mm -hmm. in the book, most of the names, all of the names of the dead are real. You know, the real people. Um, I'm the, the the narrator bears my name. He just happens to be married to someone who bears my husband's name, Tim. Uh, you know. <laughs> The book is an investigation into Holy Cross Cemetery, which, you know, a lot of people here from Antioch know. It's like, you know, it, it, it's real. Um, <laughs> you know, I, at the back of the book, I've got, you know, like a bibliography of all the sources I've researched. There's, there's a lot of facts in the book. And so people say to me, like, oh, but this isn't fiction. You know, this isn't fiction. And so I guess I can talk... I mean, I could talk about this for a long time, but is this okay to mention? You is, can just go crazy. Yeah, I mean, I won't talk about this for a long time, so I'll try and keep this really condensed, but I'll give you my little spiel on why this isn't... Why why I would never call this creative nonfiction, like, not in a million years, not even if you held, like, a gun to my head and, and said call it creative non-fiction, I'd say it's not creative non-fiction. Even though, even though you used everyone's real name. Yeah. And um, so let me think. So I guess reason number one for that would be, in a way, a very basic reason. This book and all my writing begins in the, the non-fictive realm, but I can never stay within that parameter. It makes me really uncomfortable to stick to the truth whatever that is, so I have to leave it. I have to go to the realm of fiction and I have to move back and forth uh, from non-fiction to fiction. So to call it creative non-fiction would be inauthentic and like in bad faith, I think. So that you fictionalise real people's deaths? Uh, well, the deaths aren't fictionalized. The deaths are real. What's fictionalized is my narration of them. Got it. What's fictionalized is my telling of them. I mean, I guess in part of it just has to do, you know, and I know, you know, you know, writers here would know this kind of this ongoing, quite probably boring dialogue about, you know, creative nonfiction versus, you know, versus fiction and the, the slipperiness of it. And I don't really, all I can really talk about is my personal relationship to language. But for me as a writer, it's just as soon as I start inscribing, I feel like I go to a realm somewhere between fiction and nonfiction. That to me is the most authentic mm -hmm. place where this book is lodged. Uh, I mean, there's loads of writers who have influenced me and influenced the book in terms of that. Like um, Peter Handke, the Austrian writer, has this novella called A Sorrow Beyond Dreams. It's like an amazing novella about his mother's suicide, but he doesn't call it a memoir, it's a novella. And he has this amazing definition of fiction where he says that basically fiction is the point of intersection between daily events. That fiction is essentially taking unarranged daily events, like whatever is happening to you today, rearranging it into a new order, that's fiction. Uh, also, um, you know, French writers like Marguerite Girard, Ir Hervé Guibert, like autofiction, mm -hmm. works that are blatantly autobiographical, mm -hmm. but still, mm -hmm. you know, they'd never call them a memoir. Um, there's a book, Death Sentence, from Maurice Blanchot, and his... Uh, his notion of the genre of the receipt is like a major, really important to me. Just this idea 
other, I mean, here's a very nuanced notion of what the receipt is, but basically it's a book that is neither fiction nor mm -hmm. autobiography, but resides in between. And it's a book that's about the limits of expression. It's a book about what uh, you can't tell as much as what you can tell. Mm -hmm. It's a book that sort of leaves sort of the... It's a book that there's a great... Uh, there's a great essay on the receipt uh, from Lars Ia, and he talks about this idea that a receipt is a book that marks the memory of the experience of a novel that the novel would normally leave behind in order to become a novel. The receipt takes all the, the real material but doesn't end up turning it into a novel. It just stays in this in-between place. I mean, this is sounding quite conceptual but I guess also for me it's very personal and particularly in terms of writing about death I mean I guess for me my relationship to language is that nothing's really can be articulated as soon as I begin to inscribe everything turns into fiction and this was especially for me in terms of death mm -hmm. and it's kind of it, I'm sounding conceptual but for me it also was very much a feeling based thing you know that thing when you're a kid and you go to cemeteries and, and I guess as a kid you know I hung out you know I'd You'd go wander around cemeteries. Not all and, kids. And you look, oh yeah, everybody does. And LA has got so many beautiful cemeteries. But you know, you'd go wander and you'd look at the headstones and they'd look like weird little books and it just all feels sort of mm -hmm. unreal to you and mm -hmm. kind of like the, the headstones would look like little fictions. For me, it also wasn't conceptual. It was very much just like to write about the death, the dead. I could, it, it, as soon as I begin to write about it, because I'm living, it's fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're the only ones who can, they're the only ones who can tell the real story, but we can't get that anymore. And you talk about, uh, in, in the novel, about the cemetery, uh, Holy Cross in particular, being sort of a lonely, uh, still an isolated place, but in fact, that's you say it beautifully, and I, I wish I could find the quote quickly. But in fact, it's not. It's full of, it's full of the lives lives of the dead, and you know the hauntings and the spirits or whatever that is. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the novel and religion and spirit and soul? Mm. Um, or those notions. I mean, because you play with it a little bit, not in a, not in an oppressive way at all. I mean, growing up in a in an Australian Catholic environment, there are the imprints of that yeah. that emanate. I mean, I guess how to talk. I'm not sure if I can talk about it. I mean, I know it's there. I think this mm -hmm. book definitely. You know, I was raised in a very Roman Catholic family. You know, went to Catholic boys' school for 12 years. Uh, I mean, I have a relationship to that material now that's very private that I, I, I wouldn't really talk about. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's there. I mean, it is there. It's certainly there, yeah. It's absolutely... The book is sort of infused in it. And I guess it's... But not with any agenda or... I mean, there's, not, there's no strong point of view proselytize. It's more like a, a, a questioning and an, an openness to the possibility of certain things. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way... The, the narrator is trying to figure out his own kind of personal ethics on mm -hmm. death like that. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's like, okay, let me try and get to the bottom of death. Mm. And so then, you know, different spirituals, you know, Catholicism and, and Buddhism, I think, primarily enter into it. But then he's trying to sort of figure out his own personal mm -hmm. idiosyncratic mm -hmm. ethics as how, to, as how it relates to it. I mean, you know, I like, the, you know, writers, like I love Dostoevsky, you know, his work is infused with religion. Mm -hmm. So in mm -hmm. some ways I was sort of drawing mm -hmm. on that. Or even like, you know, I really love, you know, music is perhaps as big an influence on me as literature and like, you know, Nick Cave, you know, who's, you know, the Australian musician, who I guess Blair told me he lives, he lives here now. Yes. Maybe he's even here. Is he here? Probably. No, he's not. He's probably, he's not. <laughs> but, you know, his work is so infused with religion, mm -hmm. so, like, that iconography, so... Um, in, in a sort of very nihilistic kind of way. Yeah, but also mm -hmm. very, I mean, his work's very reverent, I think, mm -hmm. too. I mean, I was really glad when... Um, one of the blurbs from the great writer uh, Lily Huang said that the book is very reverent, mm -hmm. which I was kind of really mm -hmm. glad because in some ways I think the book is both working within the realm of the taboo mm -hmm. but is also kind of, mm -hmm. I mean, I felt like I had to approach this mm -hmm. with, with reverence. Mm -hmm. It's also bold, I think, to write, write a book from the point of view of someone who hasn't, 
experience death very immediately um, or directly and and explore that when there are people out there who have really uh, suffered enormously from very close family and whatever um, and very traumatic deaths in their lives, which I, I think was a bold and interesting thing to do. And I think you really have done that beautifully. Yeah, and I mean, maybe full, it was the only place I could write from. Mm -hmm. Like that point of ignorance. And in some ways, I think it was why, and it was sort of foolish in some ways, but it was, someone else said that I was speaking to recently, they said that most death literature mm -hmm. is usually written by someone in close exactly. proximity to mm -hmm. loss. Mm -hmm. And the departure point for this book is someone who's never experienced right. loss. So, and I guess I was kind of interested, like, what can come out mm -hmm. of that investigation mm -hmm. if you're writing from that opposite mm -hmm. departure point. But it really was the only place mm -hmm. I could write from. And in some ways, I guess philosophically, I was interested in the idea that no one who at least is alive really knows anything about right. death itself. I right. mean, that's something that's... Right absolutely unknowable so mm -hmm. that point of ignorance is something mm -hmm. that's actually really mm -hmm. um, really there for everyone and to some arguably I think and I and I suspect uh, that a novel has never been written from that kind of perspective really oh, I bet there has. I bet it, I bet it has if anyone knows of one tell us but I'm, it is I'm, a book of the dead I mean I, yeah. I I guess what I hoped was that I mean that's its genre it's a book of the dead like mm -hmm. the Tibetan book of the dead and mm -hmm. it was like okay I'll try and write a book of the dead from a singular point of view mm -hmm. as I can. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think like anyone here could write their own books of the dead. You know, mm -hmm. Probably some people have already. And you would each come up with a different, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this kind of different book. And it feels, it feels very true. The voice feels very, very true. And I love that. I'm going to ask the first question that I plan to ask, because I haven't asked any of the questions yet, and it'll be my last. Um, um, you talked a little bit, there are two things that came up for me. The notion of translation as it, as it uh, relates to death, and the notion of language where it creates, where, as it relates to death. And in what you read, um, you said, death forces language to do things it was not designed to do. Language breaks down, it experiences cramps, spasms. Uh, this whole notion that, um, that the, you know, the body moving outside of language and death being outside of language. And the, uh, the novel is full of these stories being relayed and then there'll be this little um, recognition of something that's very profound, I found often, like all the way through, and I love that. And this was one of them, this notion of language and death and that relationship. Do you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it kind of goes back to, you know, how you were asking about if I'd always been a writer mm -hmm. and that period of my life when I was trying to avoid being a writer and I was doing kind of really quite terrible um, <laughs> kind of body-based performance work. It was like pretty terrible. Um, doing everything I could to avoid language because in you know like I've this sort of I have a someone I teach with that I remember she, you know she always says like oh she tells her students how much she loves language how she's in love with language and I don't I'm not like that at all I'm like really suspicious of language mm -hmm. and skeptical of it <laughs> like I kind of it's sort of where I'm kind of like don't know why I write it's just the thing I sort of you know I sort of do I feel compelled to do so it's just that thing, that language, particularly when trying to write about death, I mean, it's, it's a really futile thing to even begin with because, I mean, it's really, it's... I mean, I kind of think everything's outside of language, like, you know, mm -hmm. I sort of mm -hmm. kind of mentioned, but it was just that thing of, like, well, let me, let me try and write about the thing that's most outside of language, which mm -hmm. is the state of death, mm -hmm. and see what can come out of that, mm -hmm. I suppose. You say, you say, translating that most forked and foreign of tongues, the most difficult language to learn, the language of death, translating death or attempting to, which is what obviously you're, you're um, endeavouring to do, uh, and, I, and I love that. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about, Alistair? Because the questions that I was supposed to ask, I don't think I asked any of them. And, no, and you asked a lot. I asked a few. That's I mean, good. that feels pretty, pretty good. That feels pretty good. A good Aussie, tr a good Aussie try. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that sounds good to me. Um, I'm wondering if there are. We have a few minutes for um, any for questions. Maybe three questions from the audience um, that um, could be posed as questions and not, um, you know, no promoting your own books. <laughs> 
And no giving your treatises on death, but, but a, qu a question would be greatly received. Just one question, when you're dealing with the nature of uh, fiction versus, say, creative nonfiction, I wondered if, if an analogy, a useful analogy, might not be that, you know, it's like a mask. They, they, it's said that people behave more truthfully at a masquerade party and certainly because they're not inhibited by their actual social identity. I was, that always struck me as a useful analogy for fiction, that it, that's the mask that allows you to speak the truth, and yet you're, you're adjusting it yeah, I mean, I think even just particularly, I think with autofiction, like this genre where you can, you're not writing straight up memoir, but you can still use, you know, my own name, other people's names. I think, and I realized I was talking about with this kind of with someone recently, and he kind of asked me this terrible question, which he said like, oh. If you could choose how to die, how you die, what would you choose? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm like really superstitious. I would never answer that question. <laughs> so I kind of avoided the topic. But then somehow I, I realized that one of the kind of pleasures of writing autofiction, where I get to write a book which, where the narrator bears my own name, is that it's kind of a doubling. Like it's sort of, it's a way to sort of not die because suddenly you have this person in your this person in the book who has my name, who seems to bear a lot of my traits and my life, but he's a kind of a double, he's a doppelganger, and so it's sort of this sort of, like you said, it's sort of like a mask, but it's also this way to, it's a way to avoid, it's sort of, a, I guess it's a way to sort of maybe not die, um, you know, and, and I, <laughs> theoretically speaking. <laughs> um, good luck with that. Yeah. Um, it, fiction also strikes me as, as the... Um, the safest place to tell the truth. You know, in memoir, you've got to be careful with the truth because it's memoir, it's real. But in fiction, it's not real, so you can really go for that emotional truth in a way that I think is a wonderful gift. Yeah, but I also, again, I do want to be clear that for me, this is a very, my own personal relationship to genre. I kind of don't really like general systems of like fiction, you know, I mean, non-fiction, like which one can do, you know, what or the other. Like, there's a... The, the the kind of the the individual the protagonist is talking to in the book has this line later on in the book where he says, "Oh, he wants to keep crossing life the line between life and death until that line disintegrates and it no longer mm -hmm. exists." And that's sort of how I feel about genre. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like one of the things I try and do in this book is keep moving back and forth between fiction and mm -hmm. non-fiction, poetry and prose, until that line between genre just hopefully disintegrates mm -hmm. at some mm -hmm. point, even mm -hmm. though it probably never really does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, any other questions? So, just hearing you talk about it, my experience of reading the, the book was that it was a lot funnier. That, it, that even though it's dark and it's about death, that there's a lot of humor in it. And I wondered if you could speak to that. Yeah, I didn't really read any of the funny parts. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah. People have been saying that, like, a, like that. It's both kind of that it's both funny and that it's actually kind of warm. Mm -hmm. Like, the they get a warm feeling from the narrator, which I was really, I was surprised at, but also glad to hear it. Because like I was saying earlier, I kind, of, I kind of wrote a note on an index card during my final revision where I said, not jovial, but droll. Like, I was, I was, trying, to, <laughs> I was trying to drain or anything jovial or funny from the book and that could never happen just because the voice is pretty conversational so I guess that humor is I mean I think it's out there when you're writing about I mean it's any writer who writes about death that that humor I suppose enters and I think there's some sections that are much more that get into that much more than perhaps what I read from. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, I'm glad, yeah. I, I, that's, that's a great question because the, there is a lot of humor in there and I love, I love that you were fighting warmth and humor and it's all over the place in the book regardless. Um, one final question. by what you told us, it, it sounds like you were a little embarrassed by the performances, but did you have any that were, did you ever do a performance that was uh, related to the subject matter, uh, death, or, uh, or could you tell us about uh, a particular performance that you find that you really enjoyed or that you, that you found embarrassing? 
Um, and not. Rem- I, I, remember, I, remember the dance of death you did with Noel. No? Well, I, was, I, I, I don't really talk about that period of my life. <laughs> but, um, but, but then the, the piece Noel mentioned at the start, which was this sort of beach kind of queer project that Tim, um, my husband, directed. Someone was we buried. Well, I think we buried. We buried someone, I believe, in, I think it was Neil. We buried him in the sand, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, it was Mark. And then... And he's and still then, there? Then didn't, he, then, then didn't he go on a surfboard and get taken out to sea? Who was that? But you write, a, I mean, Mike Hazelwood, who was in that performance, is also in this book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Curious. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know if any... Even, but even not talking about them, I don't think anything was specifically related to to death except maybe the times when I was doing stuff that had no speech in it so it was kind of just like body embodiment so, sorry <laughs> I know that's boring one final question from the man in the hat uh, Tim oh yeah so during the writing of the book did you experience any death good question or did you maybe hope to or okay <laughs> definitely not hope to um trying to think not I mean well actually during you know because I wrote it over eight or nine years so Saddam Hussein so some people did some people that I wrote about most people that I'm writing about in the book the deaths took place kind of earlier this later last century earlier this century um, some further go last century, but I think most of it, it was it was written. The stories of the dead were written about with a fair amount of distance, and so not when it was happening. I th- again, I think that's why I sort of needed a long time. I really struggled for so long with the voice and tone. It was like, how do you write about this subject? And it took me a lot of years to be feel like, okay, I finally figured out a voice and tone that I felt satisfied with. I thought, okay, this this this, I think, works. Can I ask you one quick last question? Sure. As a very superstitious person, how, how has it been tackling that subject when you're deeply superstitious about things? Um, well, I kind of write about it later on in the book, the, this idea that the book might serve a kind of talismanic function, which I won't go into too much detail, but it's... I mean, yeah, I mean, it's where it's just that, you know, it's like I definitely would never have chosen to write this book because it was really to go, you know, it was like going to, you know, to kind of march over to to that plot to your desk every day to to deal with this, particularly being quite a superstitious person. It was, Mm -hmm. it was like, you know, it was, it was quite um, a perverse, you know, it's a perverse Mm -hmm. thing to Mm do. But I guess it was just that thing of trying to think of that the book might create some kind of talismanic space Mm -hmm. to ward off death. And being careful. And also there's, there's also something that I won't give directly away, but there's a sort of, if anyone reads the book, there's, there's a mention of death three times, but in a sort of an oblique way. And I place that in the book three times to kind of serve a kind of a talismanic. Mm-hmm. So it's to sort of basically so death wouldn't hear me. Mm-hmm. Um, Not that he's but, superstitious. But I was quite aware of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what... What it clearly is, is the book that you needed to write, because it's maybe not the book you particularly chose to, but you needed to, and and that's why it works so well. So let's just thank Alistair for, um, for being here and writing this wonderful novel, and I encourage you all to buy it and read it. Um, you'll enjoy it very much. Thanks, Alistair. Thank you, David. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for coming. Well, it's not just terrific. Um, yeah, let's thank David, too, for, for taking the time to... We knew that he'd be thoughtful.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.